the Chinese have had to think, you know, the Ch Chinese see um, energy, dependence on energy imports as, as a key competitive disadvantage, as a key source of strategic vulnerability. So it's made the Chinese much, much more interested in, in an energy transition. They're much more interested in uh, electric cars, in anything that can substitute for, for the oil and gas that they don't have. So they've really embraced this sort of um, energy transition, um, invested in it very heavily, um, built in many, in many cases a, a, a clear technological lead. Um, and now, of course, I think the United States is starting to see that technology lag and, and, and worrying about where that, where that might lead, particularly in a world. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'll be talking to John Kemp, the London-based Reuters energy columnist and someone whose work I have admired for many years. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much for the kind invitation to join you today. Well, look, before we begin discussing your October 21st column, which is about China's rise and American concerns and, and anxiety about uh, possible decline of the United States relative to China, Let's talk a little bit about uh, your career and as a journalist mm -hmm. and as somebody who writes an occasional column once, twice a week is what I aim for. The grind of writing a daily column about energy is, that's a tough gig, man. Tell us a little bit about how you go about it, how you pick topics and, and uh, do you run into writer's block? Um, not anymore. I mean, I, I actually, um, I find writing is the easiest part, to be honest, and, and it takes very little time. Um, the hard part is generating ideas. Um, and my usual, my usual process is actually to start playing around with data. Um, I, I spend a lot of time, I probably spend the majority of my day playing around with data and playing around with spreadsheets. Um, build charts to sort of test out theories. Um, and then the writing is really on the back of that. So, I mean, in many ways, I'm a chart geek um, and I then produce some text to sort of explain what the chart shows. I mean, I'm a big believer that, you know, charts, you know, pictures really do are a very information rich way a very, um, of, of communicating. And actually, I think charts have historically been underused in journalism. Um, I think they're a very, they're a great way to communicate a lot of information very quickly. Um, so that's my writing process is data and charts first and then, and then text at the end. Um, the writing I don't find difficult anymore. Um, it may surprise you that, um, I had terrible writer's block at university. Um, I used to rewrite and rewrite the same paragraph over and over again. Um, all I can say is I took a job after university writing. Um, I had no choice but to write or be fired. And, and over 20, 20 plus years, um, you just, it becomes second nature, to be honest. So, you know, that, that should give hope to anybody that you can get over it. Well, I think you've described a process that's similar to a lot of writers and certainly one that I've followed. My, my technique is to read and then outline sketch outlines and, and develop the, once I've got the structure of a column, then I find the information that's almost like a paint by number. 
Now, hopefully I'm a little more creative and uh, interesting than a paint by number, but you know, it's kind of that, that process. Well, look, uh, that's a great uh, background and uh, lead into the discussion of your column, which is China's rise and U.S. fears about decline. Now, if we had done this podcast before November 3rd, I think it would have been one conversation. But now that we have President-elect Joe Biden preparing to take office on January 20th, I think it's a very different conversation. So I went back to Biden's climate and clean energy platform. China is mentioned 11 times. And I'm going to read a paragraph that I think is really germane to this conversation. So here we go. Unfortunately, today the Trump administration is allowing America to fall behind in the clean energy race for the future. In 2017, China invested $3 in renewable energy for every uh, dollar in America, giving China an edge on the technologies of tomorrow that will generate well-paying jobs. By 2030, the Biden administration will put the United States back in the driver's seat, making America the world's leader in clean energy research investment, commercialization, manufacturing, and exports. And that seems to me to illustrate exactly what your column was about. Yeah, I mean, a bit of international competition is, is usually actually very good for technological innovation. I mean, you think back to uh, the, the tremendous shock that, uh, that the launch of Sputnik by the Soviet Union um, had on the United States. And that really accelerates the, the, the space race um, and, and the development of all the technology around that. So a little bit of international competition is actually usually very, very good for um, technology innovation and for policy innovation as well. And I think for, for a period of time, I mean, between 1945 and 1989, you know, the, the, the United States had a clear competitor in terms of the Soviet Union. With the demise of the Soviet Union, you have a, a sort of a 20-year, 25-year period in which it, really the United States had no significant international competitor. Um, and you might argue that that bred a sense of complacency. Um, now, suddenly, you know, the, the, the United States very aware that China is catching up fast. And that's starting to sort of create that, 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 that competitive international dynamic again. I, I think you're right. And one of the things that stuck out for me in that platform is the focus on clean energy. Biden really, I think, gets it that there's an energy transition underway. And he particularly gets it that the 2020s is a key decade. This is the decade of disruption where all those technologies that have been on the adoption S curve for 10, 20 years, they've been, you know, in the market, maturing, dropping in costs, becoming more efficient, becoming more competitive. During the 2020s, I think we're going to see them really become the dominant technology. Biden gets that, and he wants to spend a lot of money ramping up American technology, R&D, commercialization, so it can catch up or, and uh, pass China. Is that a fair summation of where you think Biden's going? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the United States has been very fortunate in that it has a tremendous endowment of, um, of fossil fuels, lots of lots of oil, lots of gas, lots of coal, um, which has been a tremendous source of competitive advantage. China doesn't have that benefit. I mean, China has a lot of, a lot of domestic coal. 
um, but very little oil and 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 relatively little gas that is at least accessible. So the Chinese have had to think. You know, the Ch Chinese see um, energy dependence on energy imports as, as a key competitive disadvantage, as a key source of strategic vulnerability. So it's made the Chinese much much more interested in in an energy transition. They're much more interested in. Uh, electric cars in anything that can substitute for for the oil and gas that they don't have. So they've really embraced this sort of um, energy transition, um, invested in it very heavily, um, built in many in many cases a, a, a clear technological lead. Um, and now, of course, I think the United States is starting to see that technology lag and 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 worrying about where that where that might lead, particularly in a world where we might be constrained in terms of burning fossil fuels. Um, so the Biden platform is very much about trying to catch up uh, with where the Chinese are and indeed to overtake them. I want to put a bit of a Canadian spin on this because I'm based in Canada, follow the Canadian energy news here very closely. And there's a big debate right now over the Keystone XL pipeline, which Biden has promised to cancel the presidential permit on it. And there's hope in many quarters of Canada that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau can meet with Joe Biden and cut a deal of some kind to save Keystone XL. But when we look at it through the lens of the, the, the clean energy plan that Biden has, and I make the point that Canada is rich in commodities, coal, oil, and natural gas. It's been a trading partner of the US, a big one for decades, in particularly in oil and gas. But clean energy, electricity essentially, is basically a technology, it's not a commodity. And so everybody, the US could conceivably over time build enough of its own uh, wind and solar and battery capability. And Tony Seba makes this argument very clearly in his, his most recent study. And what does it need Canada for then? Canada becomes a marginal supplier of maybe heavy oil or something like that. And, and I think that argument dooms Keystone XL. And so I, under, I can see the point of the Chinese, you know, saying, if we continue down the road we're on, we're vulnerable. Our energy, our energy mm -hmm. insecurity makes us vulnerable. Why would we not leapfrog onto all of this new uh, electricity generation technology, which then leads us into all sorts of the ancillary technology like batteries and electric vehicles and all of that? It seems like it seems like a 21st century economic development strategy to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways. If you if you think back between the early 1970s and the and the, the middle 2000s, the United States became increasingly worried about its dependency on on oil imports, um, and then in the 2000s, it's increasingly worried about its dependency on natural gas potential dependency on natural gas imports, and over that period of time, the the top objective for policy was to try and develop more domestic resources, which they were never terribly successful at doing, um, and, and also to find ways of, of reducing dependency on, on oil and gas. So you have lots of research programs into coal gasification, um, uh, wind, solar, et cetera. So 
that was the position of the United States for four decades. Um, obviously, with the shale revolution, which unlocks you know enormous um, domestic oil and gas resources, um, the United States sense of energy insecurity has has lessened. But China now finds itself in the position that the United States did then. It's, it's importing increasing volumes of oil and gas. Um, that is a, a source of economic insecurity. Um, if, the, if the price of oil spikes, then, then it will hit the Chinese economy very hard. Um, it's also a source of, of, of strategic insecurity. Most of the, the oil is all arriving by sea. Um, and um, from the Middle East, which leaves you very vulnerable to a, a blockade um, by the US Navy in, say, the Straits of Malacca. Um, and much of the gas is coming from countries like Australia, who are allied with the United States and increasingly see China as a potential adversary. So, you know, China has a, has a strong economic and strategic interest. Um, in, in moving away from dependence on oil and gas. Um, and that's play, you can see that playing out. I mean, they have tried, like the United States did in, in earlier periods, they have tried to develop their own oil and gas industry. They've tried to grow their output with limited success so far. Uh, so the alternative is to invest very heavily in, in, in renewables. Um, and also possibly in the long term in, in, in coal um, combined with some sort of carbon capture technology. That raises the question of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which Biden addresses several times in his uh, clean energy plan. And he singles uh, China out for being a bad boy for helping other countries invest in coal power plants. He sees this as being inimical to, you know, climate, climate action. But you can kind of see China's point of view on this. I mean, the first thing you want to do is help these countries, uh, which are your potential market. I mean, it's, it's like uh, Latin America is to the United States. It's a captive market. It's, a, it's your backyard. And so you develop, uh, you want them to develop uh, their electricity infrastructure as quickly as possible because that's where you're going to be selling all of your clean energy technology, or that'll be your primary market, maybe. And, and uh, Biden is uh, talking about uh, reining that in, and he does it from a climate point of view, and very cleverly doesn't talk about the economic point of view. But I, I think that that's equally as important uh, from you know, an American perspective. Yeah, I think you know, countries are always concerned about security in their near abroad. Um, in the case of the United States, that's been Central America, the Caribbean, South America. Um, in the case of China, it's, it's the adjacent parts of, of Eurasia um, and the Pacific. So, you know, that's, that's quite a natural, normal reaction for a, for a, for a major power. Um, and one of the ways that you build build alliances, um, one of the ways that you that you improve the strategic environment is to offer investment, usually coupled with sort of soft some form of soft loan. Um, and again, that's a fairly classic um, classic strategy. The, the Chinese are not doing anything with the Belt and Road Initiative that that the United States didn't do before them, and the European colonial powers before that. So it's a very a very normal natural um, system. 
one of the things, one of the areas where China actually does have tremendous technological advantages is actually in the electricity system as a whole. So not just coal-fired power plants, but also um, ultra-high-voltage uh, ultra ultra high um, transmission networks. Um, and I think so one of the things that China is trying to do is to offer some of that technology to, uh, you know, friendly governments. Um, and that's what's, that's what's happening under the Belt and Road Initiative. And the difficulty is that for, I mean, I don't think the Chinese have a particular, there's no evidence that the Chinese are particularly promoting the use of coal. What they're doing is they're promoting electrification. And if, electric, if the simplest, cheapest choice um, for a particular country is to, is to either burn domestic coal or import coal to generate electricity, that's what the Chinese are offering them. Um, if the simpler choice, you know, if the choice is to do is to do natural gas, then the Chinese will offer them a natural gas power plant, the expertise for that. So I, I don't think that China is particularly culpable um, in funding um, in funding coal fired power plants. Um, it's just that this is an area the West has withdrawn from already and the Chinese are continuing to offer that technology. Let's talk for a moment about U.S. shale and gas, because you mentioned the, the enormous increase in production. The U.S. is now somewhere around, uh, did it get up to 15 million barrels a day of oil production? It's somewhere in that range, low to, low to mid-teens. And it seems to me that if I was a, a President Biden, and I, was, I knew that, you know, gasoline was going to be around for, for decades yet. We're not going to get rid of it immediately. One of the things I might do as part of my climate initiative is to help some of these refineries that have transitioned to heavy crude oil processing. It costs about a billion dollars to convert a refinery. I might offer them money to convert back to light sweet crude. So not only do I potentially lower the GHG emissions from refining uh, uh, gasoline, but I also free up maybe two, three, four, five million barrels a day of market for my domestic producers. Uh, what do you think of that idea? That's an interesting one. I hadn't really, uh, I hadn't really considered it. Um, it's certainly true that I think the United States will. I don't know. I think it, it's a very difficult one. I, I suspect that the more that the the focus is more likely to be on trying to um, improve market or to maintain or improve market access for the United States to export some of its surplus light sweet crude. Um, I think, for example, there will be. I mean, the the the, the Trump administration has obviously been pushing very hard to get that light sweet crude into Asia. Um, and I think uh, a Biden administration, while I think it will probably press less hard, particularly for say the Chinese, I think it will still want to uh, keep the keep the door open for U.S. crude exports. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to want to try and sort of reconfigure all the refineries. Um, if I'm if I'm honest, I think what the Biden administration is more likely to do is to say. We, we see a, a, a gradual transition away from oil over, say, a 
a 15 to 20 to 25 year period. Um, and we just want to start running some of that capital investment down. We don't particularly want new, we don't, we don't see it as a priority to support investment, new investment in the refining sector, because we gradually see the, the capacity requirement declining over say a 20 year period. So I think that's probably a more likely approach for them. And in the meantime, to try and support domestic crude production and allow any surplus to go abroad. Uh, fair enough. And I should point out that you recently wrote a, a column about how North American and European refining capacity was shifting to Asia as uh, gasoline and diesel uh, consumption declines in those uh, mature markets. So yeah, and I think that's I think that's absolutely the direction of travel. Um, that the the direction of travel implied by the Biden platform is is gradually to have less uh, domestic uh, liquid fuel consumption and a, and a smaller refining sector. Let's talk about the politics of U.S.-China relations. Uh, they've been very contentious under Trump, and, very, and he did that very deliberately. And we've uh, seen uh, him basically bring the global economy to the brink of recession a few years ago with, uh, because of trade restrictions. And you can see clearly that, that Trump was responding to some of the same anxieties that you talk about in your October 21st column, and presumably Biden will be also responding to those kinds of anxieties. How might you think that a, a Biden administration, though, will handle the relationship with China? I think people may be surprised that there's a lot more continuity than, than change. Um, on the China issue from a Trump administration to a Biden one. Um, a, a, a tough policy towards China is perhaps one of the few areas where there's a, there's a, there's a pretty widespread consensus in Washington, D.C. Um, and I think that consensus of, of confronting China, um, of taking a strong line, is... is is something that will constrain a Biden administration, even if it wanted to do something different. Um, so I think there will be a lot of continuity. Um, I think what there may be is a change of style and there may be a slight change in strategy. So Biden, I think, is likely to want to try to, to redouble efforts, to try and build alliances to contain China's rise. Um, I think that will, you know, the, the Trump administration has already been doing that in terms of tightening um, relationships with Australia, building new relationships with India in what it calls the Indo-Pacific theatre. Um, what I think the Biden administration will do is it will double down on those efforts and I think it will also try to, to um, rebuild relations with traditional allies in, in Europe to try and, and get them on side in this kind of um, they won't call it this, but an anti-China coalition in, in, in a sort of in a, in a broad coalition of of of, of like-minded democracies to confront China. Um, so I think there will be a lot more continuity in terms of the basic direction of travel. I think there will be some change in style. I think there is a potential issue here, which is there are a long list of areas um, where the West has strong disagreements with China, everything from uh, the Taiwan Strait, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, espionage, technology transfer, 
um, subsidies for domestic industry. There's a very long list of, of areas which have become, become flashpoints. And there is no doubt that China, as a result, um, the United States and its allies in the Five Eyes group and, and its wider group of allies see China now as um, not just a strategic competitor, but in many ways as a, as a strategic adversary. So that, 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 that has happened. But there are areas in which um, the United States and its allies need to cooperate with China. Climate change is, is clearly the top of that agenda. So part of that challenge is how do you have, how do you have a, 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 a competitive relationship but also keep it constructive? Because there will be areas where you clearly need, um, you clearly need to enlist Chinese support. Um, one of the first, one of the one of the earliest um, instances of this is going to be next year um, with the with the next UNFCC um, meeting in London. Um, and if you want to make progress on that, if you want to if you want to uh, show that you have a, 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 an accelerated plan for reducing CO two emissions, you've got to be able to bring China to the table. So balancing that comp strategic competition with some degree of cooperation will, I think, be the toughest challenge for the Biden administration. Well, that raises an interesting question about where Russia fits into this uh, new order. And it's pretty clear that the U.S. will lead one coalition, China will lead another coalition. Where does, where does Russia fit? I think Russia, I mean, again, to, to use a historical parallel, um, during the, at the height of the Cold War, um, one of the top US priorities was to divide the Russians, the communist Russia from communist China um, as part of its strategy for containing the Soviet Union. So the United States improved relations with China to, to increase Russia's isolation. I think the US strategy over the next 10 to 20 years will be the inverse of that. So again, I think the top priority for the United States and its allies will be dividing uh, Russia from China to increase isolation of, um, uh, of communist China. Um, that is complicated, I think, at the moment by the fact that, um, again, the, the West has a long list of, 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 of disputes um, with the government of Vladimir Putin. I think there has been some desire to improve that relationship, um, mostly because of a desire to sort of um, increase uh, the isolation of China and prevent any kind of Russian-Chinese alliance. Um, but I think it's proved very, very difficult because there is quite a long list of, of, of disputes with, with Russia that are very active and that have made it very difficult to sort of do detente. Um, but I do think that the, the overall direction of strategic travel here will be for, for the United States and its, and its allies to try to improve relations with Russia in order to um, increase China's isolation. Now, Biden says in his clean energy plan that, and it's in the quote that I, I read at the beginning of our, our conversation, that clean energy, tech, uh, clean energy technology exports will be high on his list of priorities. And it looks like that will almost certainly mean better trade 
relations with its allies. Uh, Trump mm -hmm. has been difficult, uh, to say the least. And Canada is the United States' biggest trading partner, and we have not been pleased uh, over the last four years. So I would expect Biden to make a concerted effort to improve that. Does that mean that we'll see the United States go back to an emphasis on multilateral trade agreements, or will we see it continue Trump's emphasis on bilateral agreements? I mean, again, there's always been a tension um, between the 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 the, diplo the, the, the diplomatic um, and trade side and the domestic politics. I mean, we've seen that um, for decades. Um, we saw that um, in terms of the tensions between the United States and Japan during the 1970s and the 1980s that, that culminated in a series of sort of voluntary export restraints. There's always been a tension between um, promoting uh, trade liberalization um, because it's good economic policy and because it's good diplomatic policy and it's a good way of, of cementing relationships with, with, with allies. And on the other hand, needing to protect vulnerable domestic industries um, from international competition. And I, that problem is not going to go away. Um, Joe Biden has won the presidency by very narrow margins in a number of states. Um, he, he has to be attentive to the concerns of of working class Americans um, in, in some traditional heavy industries. He can't simply lift all the tariffs and let them face you know, full-blown international competition. So it's a tough one. It will be a tough one. And again, I think what you will see is that there may be more elements of continuity between, a, between the Trump administration and a Biden administration than people currently I think there'll be a lot more talk about multilateralism and that multilateralism will also be packaged up again as a way of creating a united front to, uh, to, to confront China. And I would see that happening. Uh, I think there will be much more emphasis on the need for international rules, um, enforcement of those rules to kind of with the, with the, with the aim of constraining Chinese behaviour. Um, but at the same time, it runs up against the, the, the domestic political reality. You know, Biden has a, you know, Biden has been elected with a wafer-thin majority in a number of states that either he or his successor as a Democratic nominee will need to win again in 2024. And that means being very careful about... Um, about trade measures um, that, that threaten domestic jobs. Final question, John, and I'm interested in your take on the pace of the energy transition. Are you in the Vaclav Smil camp, which says that energy transitions are very slow and that many, he argues uh, rather uh, adamantly that uh, too many clean energy boosters, perhaps Joe Biden would be in that camp, are out a, a way ahead of the technology and a, ahead of the process? Or are you in the Tony Siva camp, which states that the technology is ready? It's been on the, on the adoption curve for 20 years. It's now coming to the inflection point. And the adoption of uh, 
solar wind batteries and other related technologies are really uh, ready to be adopted almost like the iPhone, where you have a rapid, you know, decade of rapid growth and that transforms the very structure of the industry as well as mm -hmm. all sorts of related uh, components of the economy. Where, where, where do you sit on that? Um, my inclination is probably closer to, to Smil. Um, I, I think he's right. The economics of energy, energy transitions naturally take very long periods of time. Um, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about a capital intensive industry. We're talking about very complex systems. They naturally change, you know, fairly slowly and it takes multiple decades. In this particular instance, the question is, can we use political will and a, a, and a conscious political decision to try to speed up a process that would naturally take multiple decades? Um, I think the real question there is, does that political will really exist? And again, I go back to the point, which is, you know, it is not clear that climate change is a super high priority for a large part of the population. What I think we've had in the United States, for example, is an election in which people, climate change was not one of the highest priority issues for most American voters. Um, and again, you've got, you know, the Biden administration has some very, very ambitious plans around climate change. It has probably, it has a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. It may not have a majority at all in the Senate, which constrains what it can do. Um, it faces a fairly tough, potentially a very tough re-election battle in 2024, whether, whether, whether Joe Biden or his vice president or another Democrat is, is the nominee in 2024. Uh, it has razor thin margins in a number of in number of key industrial states that could be hit very hard by climate change policies. So it's not clear to me, you know, we know that the economics favors a slow transition. We know that perhaps a, a, a strong political push could accelerate that process, but it's far from clear to me that we have that strong political will at the moment, whatever the, whatever the Biden platform um, might say. Fair enough. And I, I want to close with a bit of a conversation around the importance of displacement versus disruption, because it seems like we don't take this seriously. We take the Schmiel view and say, well, you know, it's going to take a long time and we have plenty of time to adapt. And I think that we miss the importance of disruption. It doesn't take, for instance, in oil markets, you know, when we saw the downturn in late 2014, uh, it, oversupply of maybe one and a half, two million barrels in a hundred million barrel a day uh, market, and it was a tremendous disruption. And sometimes very small changes within the market mm -hmm. can lead to very significant disruptions. And I think that's what the 2020s are about. We're going to see, you know, maybe market penetration of a particular technology might rise from 3% to 5% or 5% to 10%. But that will be the thing that disrupts markets significantly and really accelerates change. I, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, if you think about, you know, energy transitions at one, at one, at one level are quite slow. So they take, you know, you know, they might, they might play out over sort of 40, 50 plus year periods, but the average working lifetime is more than 40 years um, in, in, in any of the advanced economies. So, you know, the, the reality is that although the energy transitions actually happen relatively quickly compared to a working lifetime, people who are entering the job market now in a world that is dominated by oil, gas, coal, um, are, are like, it, it's very plausible that by the end of their working lifetime, the world will be completely dominated by wind, solar, renewables, and, and electric cars. Um, and that, I think, is the key challenge, that you know, even though these transitions play out in some ways quite slowly, compared to any one person's working lifetime, any one voter's working lifetime, any one employee's working lifetime, it's pretty quick. That's not too scary if you are in your early 20s and you're just starting out and you haven't, you know, it's much more scary once you get to your mid 40s or your 50s um, and you have, in, you have acquired a lot of, a lot of industry specific capital um, and, and retraining um, and finding a new job is, is very hard. So I think that for me is the key issue that, that, you know, the transition could play out quite quickly in terms of people's working lifetimes. And be and be enormously disruptive. John, thank you very much for this uh, fascinating conversation, and we'll look forward to chatting with you again uh, about these kinds of issues because uh, we are not seeing the the last of them for a long time. Thank you.